собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Did you know there was domestic service in the Soviet Union? I mean, of course there was. We have stories of Soviet elites having nannies to take care of their children, but I always assumed that this practice was part of an underground economy and spoken about quietly. As my guest Alyssa Klotz explains, not only was there domestic service, maids, nannies, cooks in the USSR, they had their own union, labor rights, and privileges. But as you know, Soviet life was always more complicated than that. So what's the story with domestic labor in a socialist country, and what does it say about Soviet life? Alyssa Klotz is an assistant professor of Russian history at the University of Pittsburgh, specializing in social history, gender, and everyday life under Soviet socialism. She's writing a book tentatively titled The Kitchen Maid That Will Rule the State, Domestic Service and the Soviet Union. Here's Alyssa Klotz. I figure just to start, and I think this would be good for the, the, the newsletter, is just to introduce yourself. What's your name? Who are you? Okay, my name is Alyssa Klotz, and I'm assistant professor of history at Pitt. And I'm originally from Perm, Russia, or as we call it, Perm. And if that sounds hard, don't worry about it. Most Russians can't pronounce it either. And this is where I did my undergraduate and also my first graduate degree, the Candidate of Science degree. And then I went on to do my PhD at Rutgers University, where I studied with Johan Heldeck. And after defending my dissertation, my first job was at the European University in St. Petersburg. And actually, Last year, just before coming to Pitt, I was a fellow at the Zvi Yevet School of Historical Studies at Tel Aviv University. But I'm very happy to be here. Right. So, you, have you, so you've taught in three different countries then? I have, indeed. What, what are some of the, the differences or challenges or what, what's the experience like of teaching Russia, history in Russia, of course, Russian history in Russia, teaching in Tel Aviv in Israel? and then teaching in the United States? Well, I didn't have to teach in, te in Tel Aviv, actually, oh, okay. so it was just a research fellowship. Oh, okay. But yeah, there is a difference between teaching, teaching in general in Russia and in, in the States, because I think the relationship between professors and students is quite different. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of particularly um, older generation professors in Russia look at students as like they're empty vessels to be filled by knowledge. And so a lot of um, teaching is actually lecturing and kind of um, giving them information or factual knowledge or giving them skills. Mm -hmm. 
And I think in the U.S., students feel a little more empowered, also because they pay for their education. But I think the general culture is slightly different. Um, American students seem to be more critical or can be more critical of their professors, and they're more ready to challenge them. And I think there are advantages and disadvantages to that. But I think this is also a different two different cultures overall so you have to you know accept it tell me about your work you you're writing about which i i admit um when i heard about the subject you, you work on which is domestic labor in the soviet union uh, i'm ashamed to say that i didn't actually consider the fact that there was domestic labor in the soviet union <laughs> <laughs> so i i i'm immediately interested in this so t tell me about the, this work like how did you get interested in in looking at domestic labor and, and what is your focus on it? Well, it wasn't that surprising to me that there was domestic service in the Soviet Union because my mother actually grew up with a nanny in their early 1950s and my grandparents weren't particularly well off. My grandfather was a teacher, my grandmother was a doctor. So, you know, kind of what we would call here middle class. Yeah. Um, but so that wasn't news to me. But of course, I didn't think about it as um, an interesting object of study. Uh, and when I was doing, when I decided to do my candidate of science degree, my professor at Perm State University, Galina Alexandrovna Yankovskaya, um, was very generous. She talked to me about different different options, and then domestic service was one of them. And I kind of thought, hmm, that sounds like something I can relate to. But when I started this project, I thought it's going to be a study of something very illicit, something that was happening behind closed doors of the Soviet you know, middle or upper class apartments. And this is what you actually see in the historiography. So that domestic service existed, but people didn't like to talk about it. Or if they did, they talk about it in a negative way. But that wasn't really the case. Mm -hmm. First of all, domestic service was completely legal throughout Soviet history. There was a special law regulating it. There was a special union that was supposed to, well, take care and monitor um, domestic workers. And this phenomenon was widely discussed and not necessarily in negative terms. And this is, I think, is the most surprising part for me that at a certain point, domestic service was actually embraced as an essential part of socialist economy. What do you mean by that? In what sense? So um, if you look at the publications about domestic service, um, so if you look at the publications, say, from the early 1920s, uh, there is the understanding that domestic service is something temporary, you know, a lot of the employers are actually um, NEPMEN, and there is a general anticipation that this institution is part of the new economic policy situation. Mm -hmm. So under the first year plan, so when, when we have forced industrialization, uh, the, the main idea is to retrain domestic workers for production, productive labor in the factories, right. and this is the, the goal. But by mid-1930s, we see a complete U-turn in the official discourse. Mm. The argument is now that domestic workers are actually part 
of this whole project of building socialism, they are contributing to building socialism indirectly by creating the environment in the workers' home so they can come home, rest, eat a hot meal, and then perform their labor fits in the factory. And of course, domestic workers look after children. So all this talk, as one of the newspapers put it, all this talk about domestic service disappearing is a kind of leftism. It's very dangerous. So domestic workers are equal contributors to socialism. Mm, I see. So it, does this kind of coincide with a general turn away from socializing family life, socializing domestic labor, you know, transferring, say, the kitchen to the canteen and things like this? Is this kind of, is, I guess, is the shift just a, a embrace of the reality of conditions or is it merely an ideological shift that occurs or can those even be separated? Yeah, I think those are those are two things that work together. So on the one hand, the Bolsheviks never give up on the idea of building all those canteens mm -hmm. and daycare centers for children. But the most important thing for them is to build the material base for transitioning first to socialism and then theoretically in the future to communism. So they really believe that the most important sector is the production sector. Right. And the resources are limited, so you know, you have to postpone building all those canteens or daycare centers. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, of course, part of the story. And of course, then somebody needs to take care of the children or run the household. And also an important part of the story is that starting around 1930, there is a general drive to bring women into production. So if you have a mother and a father both employed in, in production, uh, who's going to take care of the children. Right. And then, of course, the logical solution, if you don't have enough daycare centers, is, is to have women coming from the countryside. They're not skilled enough. So the value of the urban mother is more valuable than their labor. So they come from the countryside and take on, and then they take over the kitchen, mm -hmm. right? And then, of course, the second part of this is the ideological shift. And I'm not the first to, to say this, but um, after the Congress of Victors in 1934, we see this, um, well, so the, uh, socialism is officially built. So all the elements that were considered uh, kind of dangerous and problematic before were reimagined as non-dangerous and not problematic because, well, we have socialism now. There is no, domestic service is not exploitation mm -hmm. because we don't have exploitation anymore because we don't have exploiters. Right. So what, what is the, the conditions of, of labor for domestic servants and domestic service in general? Like, so because as you said, they have a union. Uh, you wrote about uh, how conflicts between employee and employer are settled. Um, they have laws to protect labor laws to theoretically protect them and give them rights. So what is the, what is the, the reality of domestic service? Well, like everywhere, the reality of domestic service is actually hard work. And even more so in the Soviet Union, because the infrastructure is very poor, there's often no running water in the apartments, even, you know, in, as late as in the 1950s. Uh, also, there is the housing problem. So the absolute majority of domestic workers are live-in servants. Mm 
Mm. And this is one of the incentives why women would choose right. this job is because they need a, somewhere to sleep. Yeah. And of course, uh, so, you know, they do all those things that domestic workers in other societies do. They clean, they cook. The majority actually take care of children. This is one of the main reasons uh, Soviet families hire domestic workers. Mm. Okay. So most of domestic workers are nannies. But at the same time, as you said, uh, this is a very unique situation because no other country at this point in time has this kind of domestic worker-friendly legislation, has a state union for them. And that, of course, um, first of all, it gives domestic workers the language to demand better conditions for themselves. Uh, for example, the law states that they, uh, that they are entitled to a, a, to days off, to an evening off to go study at an evening school, to a paid vacation. And so all those things that a regular worker, work in production would have. But of course, domestic workers in other countries didn't. Now, of course, when I say they were entitled to that according to the law, that doesn't mean that they necessarily got it. And actually, in the 1920s, the union did a study interviewing domestic workers and asking them, you know, do you have a day off? And most of them would say yes. But then when the interview would ask him, so what do you do? And they're like, well, you know, I make the breakfast and I lit the stove and they do a little bit of sewing. And then if I have something to do, I will go out for a couple of hours. But again, it's interesting to think about what it actually meant to those domestic workers. Did they see it as exploitation, for example? So I interviewed one woman who worked as a nanny in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And I asked her, did you have vacation? Did you have days off? And she said, no, of course not. And I asked her, how, so how did you feel about that? She was like, that was completely normal. Did you see my my uh, mistress? She was an engineer. She was at the drawing board day and night. Everyone in the family was working like crazy, and I was working too. Mm -hmm. So did they? So this is actually interesting. So the kind of two things. First is is that they're living in the family. So on the one hand, they if they lose their job, then they're kind of out on the street. That's one thing. But then because they live with the family and they're raising children, so what do they become part? What is the relationship and do they become part of, in many cases, the family? Is it like a general extended family of sorts? This is a very interesting question and I really had a hard time getting at it mm. because of the sources. Um, this is not something you will find in official union records. So I mostly relied on oral interviews and sometimes on diaries and memoirs. And I would say that, um, so in the early 1920s, the official rhetoric was um, that this um, this family metaphor was actually very dangerous because people would say, "Oh, we treat you as family. That's why you're not getting paid. Right. You know, that's why. You know, can you maybe work on the weekend?" So the union would be very much against this rhetoric. No, domestic workers are workers. They're employed. Here's a contract. But then in the 1930s, there is again this shift, and. 
as I said, because the, there are no more exploiters, the domestic workers is not exploitation anymore. So what should be the relationship between the employer and the domestic worker? And actually, the family metaphor comes back. And now, if you look at official publication, they glorify uh, employers who treat their domestic workers like family. Mm-hmm. Um, they allow a pregnant domestic worker to stay in the apartment and live with her baby. They take care of the elderly nanny who no longer works. So this is what the good dem- uh, employer should mm-hmm. do. And in return, a good domestic worker would be also treating them you know, with respect and loyalty is a kind of a junior member of the family. Right. And what I see in the interviews in and the memoirs, this metaphor of family is really persistent. Uh, when you talk to people who used to have domestic workers in the Soviet times, they would never, um, I would say they would very rarely say something about, you know, she was a worker, I really cared about the contract, even though if they did have an official contract. They really emphasized that they treated these women like members of the family. Right. A lot of um, domestic workers were young girls, teenage girls mm. coming from the countryside. So on the one hand, that made them very vulnerable. And trust me, there are a lot of ugly things going on (laughs) in a family. But at the same time, you know, some employers would see them as their adopted children. And they would say that, you know, she was like a daughter to me. And, you know, they would, you know, they would help them get into college or arrange for them to have a different job. Mm-hmm. Or they would say something, well, my nanny, she was like a grandmother to me. So this language is very persistent. And you see all kinds of complex relationship between the employer and their family and then the domestic worker and the domestic worker's family because they had families too, often, you know, in the countryside. So, you know, their relatives would come and stay with the family when they're in the city or you would have a family arrested when both parents are arrested. The nanny can take the child and raise it, you know, alone or with her family mm-hmm. or you know a lot of stories that during the war domestic workers who had connections in the village would bring their starving employers to the countryside and help them survive right. but then of course there were a lot of tensions as well and i don't want to say that you know it was all nice and you know everyone was living like one big family of course right. not but i think just to look at it as exploitation mm-hmm. is a little one-sided. So do, do how long do, do domestic, because the way you're describing it, it sounds like these domestic workers actually stay with families for a long time. That could happen. That didn't always happen. Sure. Actually, we don't have any precise statistics. Sure. Uh, I would assume that most of them moved on eventually, went to some sort of... Um, college or got a job in the factory or got married or went back to to the countryside but some of them did stay with families um, until the end of their lives I have a case where actually the employer and the domestic worker were so close they were buried together Wow! and that was the employers well they wanted to be in one grave Mm -hmm. in a single grave and um, or for example even if they left they could maintain relationship. I also have, um, I interviewed a woman who worked uh, as a domestic worker after the war 
in a Jewish family. And then they helped her get a job. Um, they were doctors, so they helped her get a job mm-hmm. in the hospital. She worked as a nurse all her life, but they were in touch. And then when the family immigrated to Israel in their early 90s, she decided she would want to go and see them in Israel. Mm-hmm. And of course, this woman had never been outside. Well, she was from Perm, so she had never been outside of Perm. She hadn't been to Moscow. You know, you're talking going to another country in, I think that was in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. But she did, she went to Moscow, she got a visa, and she spent a month in Israel. And, and she was already an older woman yeah. at that point. So, but that was very important to her to go and visit that she called them my Jews. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I would imagine that a lot of the age ranges for a lot of these are either fairly young, so before marriage, and or fairly old, like pension age for a lot of these domestic laborers. Is that you don't find outside of the people who stay with families for many, many years, you don't do you find many middle aged, like between in their late 20s to say 50s? Uh, of course, the majority of domestic workers are very young, so let's say under 20. And then, of course, you have the older women's cohort. But women of all ages worked in domestic work. Some of them never got married. Some yeah. of them were widowed. So it's not like a woman in the 19th, a woman in her 30s was, you know, wouldn't find work as a domestic worker or wouldn't choose the, this job. There were different circumstances. Right. And what about the gender aspects? Because uh, in, in the, the article you sent me, there was that really revealing quote of, uh, well, you know, what what is a how is a single man supposed to eat? <laughs> and so this is this is, you know, I, I would imagine that there are very, very few, if any, male domestic servants, or maybe you can correct me. So this is a primarily you know, women are working in this. So what is this, what is your, how does this figure into the gender aspects of these relations? Well, feminization of domestic service was something that was going on across the board, not only in the Russian empire, but everywhere else in Europe in the late 19th, early 20th century. Domestic labor was becoming more and more feminized. But before 1917, there was still, significant group of domestic servants who were male. They mostly um, worked in big houses. So there would be uh, butlers or lackeys. They were, yeah, they were quite privileged. If Mm -hmm. you know, if you look at this broad category of domestic servants. Like Downton Abbey or something Exactly, exactly. I mean, there were big families, grand families like that Mm -hmm. in the Russian empire as well. But after the revolution, this whole sector of economy becomes completely feminized. Mm. First of all, of course, because there are more opportunity. Well, first of all, there are no grand houses anymore. Second, there are more opportunities for men to be in productive labor. And it becomes, um, it, it's not respectable anymore. Right. to be a servant for a man. And actually one of the publication that deals with male domestic service in Central Asia, and that was um, another aspect of it, of course, in the Muslim areas of the, um, of the Soviet Union, you have a problem. You can't have women working in right. somebody else's home. You know, if we're talking about Muslim women. So there was a segment of male domestic workers in, uh, in Central Asia, for example. So, um, the article would criticize this practice of hiring men as servants because that is very backwards. Mm-hmm. Only in 
in pre-revolutionary times, we had men waste their labor in those meaningless jobs. Right. So you can see that the notion is that, like this argument is based on the notion that women are the ones to do housework. Yeah. And this is actually a very interesting um, aspect of this whole discussion about domestic service. So on the one hand, as I said, uh, by the 1930s, uh, domestic service is completely acceptable. But of course, there is this underlying tension between the egalitarian principles of the Soviet state and the practice of having basically a servant. And people feel that. And um, there are discussions after Stalin's death. Is it actually acceptable to have uh, healthy women walking somebody's dogs? And during the discussion, you can see the critique of, say, financial inequality, the inequality of status. So there's this concern with class, Mm -hmm. but there is no concern with gender. No one, as far as I know, has ever said that, well, maybe we should redistribute labor in the home Mm -hmm. and have men involved in looking after kids and doing the dishes. Well, clearly, I mean, and you pointed this out, too, in your writing that, um, you know, the concept of labor itself is gendered, right? The idea that, I mean, just when you're you're, you're speaking about the criticism of having uh, in Muslim areas of male servants, uh, because productive labor is masculine, right? There's a there's by having these these men. Do, as servants, you're emasculating them, right? You're feminizing them. Exactly. Uh, and so, and there's all sorts, of course, you know, gender issues with the type of labor you do. So I, I imagine this is also, this is all, can you talk about that too? Yes. Yeah, so um, I think what's important to understand if you want to understand how domestic labor function in the Soviet Union um, is that there was a hierarchy of labor. Mm-hmm. So communism is an egalitarian ideology, right? But complete equality is only possible under communism. In the meantime, while we are slowly moving towards communism, our primary concern is building uh, the material base for the transition. So different people have different skills or different talents. So those who bring more to the table are more valuable for the society. And of course, the most privileged are the ones in production or the ones in you know, ideological jobs. And this hierarchy is everywhere. That's why you have different systems of distribution of goods, you know, different kind of cafeterias. Right. So it's everywhere. It's really pervasive in the Soviet system. But of course, this hierarchy is gendered. And housework is very much at the bottom of the hierarchy, even though there is a, a constant emphasis of the importance of motherhood and you know how family is important for a stable Soviet society. Housework itself is still considered drudgery. That's why you need to have all these cafeterias or daycare centers. I don't know if you remember um, this quote from Lenin, um, he said that um, housework is the most debilitating kind of work. Mm. So of course, it's not, uh, it's not leading to any kind of political development. So at the same time, it, like on the one hand, you try to uh, elevate the value of motherhood and womanhood, but at the same time, 
you really don't see housework as equally valuable to yeah. productive work. Yeah, and so in this case, the Soviet Union is in line with probably with every society. Very much so, yes. Very <laughs> right, much not so. valuing domestic domestic work in any capacity. So now your research, you, you're moving on in your, your next project to deal with old age. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what led you to, to that topic? Um, are you familiar with the book, How the Steel Was Tempered? Yes. Um, those who don't know, it's, a, I think, the most quintessential Soviet novel. And if you're interested in Soviet history, you should definitely read it. I'm not saying it's a great piece of literature. <laughs> Actually, it's not. But it was very popular throughout Soviet history. So the main character there, Pavel Karchagin, and this is this young man who gets involved in the revolutionary movement. And, um, you know, he, he's part of the civil war and then the reconstruction of the country after. And then he's also involved in, I think, the first steps of industrialization. And then he dies because of the previous injuries. Mm-hmm. Dies in glory. But what if he didn't die? What if he, you know, survived the 1930s, survived the war, and by 1956, he would have reached retirement age, according to the new law that uh, Khrushchev introduced, actually, in 1956. Um, uh, The law was basically introducing universal uh, old age pension for urban dwellers. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the starting point. What would... Pavel Karchak do when he retires. I can't imagine him gardening yeah. or just, you know, sitting on a bench. He would want to do something. Mm-hmm. So that's why uh, Maria Ramashova, my co-author, and I decided to look uh, at this particular cohort of Soviet pensioners, mm-hmm. the retired activists, yeah. who were actually um, maybe not so numerous, by really dominating public organizations of the Khrushchev era. And those were either former teachers, former uh, party members, all kinds of people that had been really invested in the Soviet project from the very beginning and wanted to continue contributing to socialism. Mm -hmm. You know, I I have a question along along these lines. Uh, I don't know if you can answer, but it's something that I, I, I came across years ago when I was doing research on the Komsomol. And that is, there is a, a big memory project in the late 60s for the 50th anniversary of the October Revolution. There's 50th anniversary of the Komsomol, 50th anniversary of the Civil War, et cetera, et cetera. But also there's a memoir project, a, a memory project around, say, industrialization and things like this. And it's interesting because the people, of course, who are writing in these collected volumes are now pensioners, right? They're the first generation who went through the, you know, quote unquote, fires of revolution. Um, and and I always thought that these, it was a twofold thing. One is to memorialize that generation, but also to inspire the next. <laughs> because, you know, it's a little, the, the new generation doesn't have that fire really, except for, the, say, the war. To, to inspire the building of socialism or building of communism. Um, so t- can you talk broadly about this? I mean, it's really interesting because you're dealing with, you know, in this article, at least Lenin's cohort, those people who were born at the turn of the 20th century, who were of age during the revolution and through this entire process of, you know, building socialism. So how are these people regarded in the post-war when they are now pensioners? Well, 
I think you're absolutely right. There is, on the one hand, this concern that the younger generation has lost touch with its mm -hmm. revolutionary roots. And one of the jobs, uh, this is the question, what should they, what can they do after right. they retire? And one of their jobs is actually to reinvigorate the young. That's why they do all these endless talks to high school students. Mm -hmm. They write for the youth, and not only for the youth, but, you know, general population. So this is part of their job. Um, there are other things they can do. They can get involved in public organizations, like um, they can become uh, people's guards or be in people's courts or in the women's Soviets or pensioner Soviets. There were these councils for women or for pensioners. So um, how they were regarded by the population, it's hard to say. Uh, there is evidence, of course, that a lot of people were quite annoyed by this um, very active elderly people. Um, there was a quote um, from one of, I mean, I found it in one of the older political science publications that um, there's a cons uh, this public organization run by the old people of the conspiracy against the young in the Soviet <laughs> Union. Um, but the official discourse, of course, glorified uh, this generation as the generation that brings together the old and the young, the generation that, you know, really built this country and built socialism. And they themselves see, they see themselves as a very particular group, uh, as a particular generation. And this generational language is very prominent in their writing. Mm -hmm. So we're... Of course, we're interested in one particular age cohort, but we're also interested in how they engage with this concept of generation and how they see their own place in history. Right. And I, and in your article, I really uh, like the fact that, as you pointed out rightly, most of the discussion of the Thaw period, of the Khrushchev period, is one about youth. Most historians are looking at young people, What are, how are young people shaping the, the, the Thaw period? And you actually rightly insert, well, you have this other generation that's also contributing to that. So talk about their role in our understanding of that Khrushchev reform period. One of, the, one of Khrushchev's central ideas was coming back to Lenin's uh, promise of the withering away of the state. Mm -hmm. That's why Khrushchev wanted to stimulate people's public activism and create all this public organization that, that I mentioned, you know, and they could be um, at the level, they were not top down as the Komsomol, for example, or the unions, they were really at the local level, they were vaguely organized, for example, women's Soviets didn't have a hierarchy, but they were kind of led by Rabotnitsa, the women's worker journal, so they received some sort of guidance, but it was not a top down structure. So. Khrushchev really wanted to build up those organizations. But who, and they actually become very numerous in, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, and continue actually throughout, some of them continue throughout the Brezhnev period as well. So who was running those organizations? There's no comprehensive statistic, but if you look at individual organizations for which we do have statistics, you would have that, you would see that they were dominated by, 
by the older generation, the retirees, people, you know, for, for women, it will be 55 plus and for women, 60 plus. And they were, you know, could be retired army officers running veteran organizations or retired educators um, being serving as heads as the juvenile delinquency committees. So you see how these people that have officially retired still um, continue performing some sort of valuable labor for the state. And it's interesting that the official discourse uh, frames it as active old age. Mm -hmm. We tend to think of uh, this concept of active old age as something very modern that appeared um, very recently, just, you know, maybe just over a decade ago. And it's all about, you know, consumption and going traveling. But the Soviets had their own idea of an active old age. Mm. And an active retiree is someone who still contributes to the society. This brings up the, the issue of uh, the development of, in other contexts, we would call civil society. Do you, how do you understand their place in, because as you said, they're not necessarily that centrally controlled, they're very grassroots, there's not a lot of direction. They, they also act as a, um, and I know this of course also with veterans groups, they act as a lobby organizations to lobby the state for various rights and privileges and, and stuff like that. So do you see this as a, the beginnings or the existence of a Soviet civil society? This is a difficult question because I can never fully understand what a civil society <laughs> is. There is that. Yeah, there is that problem, yes. <laughs> and so, but of course this question often comes up. Are they actually, um, where does the initiative come from? Is it from the state mm-hmm. or is that a grassroots initiative? Are they working for the state or for themselves? But I think that this division doesn't really make sense in this context because it, they didn't, they themselves didn't think about it that way. They, uh, they weren't, they didn't see themselves as working just for themselves or just for them, the state. They thought that their goals coincided. And sometimes you would see uh, these activists coming up with initiatives on their own, but at the same time, they're actively looking for guidance. They would often complain, why don't we receive guidance from the party? We've already organized, we've collected this money, right. you know, with membership fees, we're already doing that, but we need more guidance. Mm-hmm. And then of course the center would be like, oh my God, they've collected their own membership fees. That's absolutely unacceptable. So they would say in the letter, like no membership fees, you can't have an organization. For example, retired party members would create their own, um, kind of party cell mm-hmm. of retired party members. Right. And then the party would freak, um, the center would freak out because you cannot have a separate party self. Your party self, can, you have to be a part of the party self where you used to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are all these, um, you know, push and pull situations. And I think for these elderly men and women, participation in public organization was a kind of living ideology. Right. This is how they saw themselves as part of this major project of building socialism and moving on to communism. That's another important thing to remember if we're talking about the Khrushchev era. The Soviet state was supposed to get to communism by 1980. Mm. And how do you feel 
if you were born, say, in 1902, you can technically live to see communism. And this is a very inspiring, but also... I don't know. It's a, it's a crazy thought, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think uh, when you look at some of the Khrushchev speeches, he might have felt the same way. Um, um, in one of the meetings with young writers, or just with the writers, Ehrenberg says something like, "Well, of course, we, the older generation, will never live to will not live to see communism." And then Khrushchev interrupts him and is like, "Never lose hope." Right. Never lose hope. Right. Well, he's from that generation. Yeah, exactly. Well. Khrushchev is exactly, I mean, if you look at the age mm-hmm. cohort, yeah. he's exactly that kind of man. Yeah. I mean, he, he shares a lot of the similar, you know, social background. You know, a lot of these people who are very active, they came from lower class backgrounds. The Soviets, the Soviet system brought them up. You know, these people who are socially active, by all intents and purposes, a lot of them, I would imagine, are Soviet middle class. Uh, so they owe a lot to, as a defining moment of their life, that this struggle is part of it. And Khrushchev is a good good example of that as well. Yeah, exactly. So lastly, um, I was struck that in, in both your projects, uh, one on domestic labor and the other on uh, old age or pensioners, um, is, is kind of looking at Soviet society from the margins. And, and, and by that, I, I mean that these are both areas that both in our public consciousness, but also in our historical consciousness, don't usually give a lot of historical agency to, right? There, there are not a lot of books in the Russian case, especially on domestic labor. You, yours might be the first one. It is. <laughs> and then on old age, I know some historians, of course, looking have been looking at it, but it is also a recent development in, in histor- for historians' attentions. So first, what attracts you if this history of the margins is really accurate? Uh, what attracts you to this? And, and what does it give you um, in your understanding of Soviet society as a whole, looking at it from those perspectives, how do you understand Soviet society differently or how has it changed your ideas of it? I think with both projects, I really started with, wow, no one has written about it. <laughs> yeah. Especially with domestic services, such a major topic everywhere else. Right. And then I said, and I outset, like, I didn't actually consider their existence. So I'm, you know, I'm to blame as well. <laughs> well, maybe that's part of your, um, I would say, bias. Because, sure. um, because when we think about domestic service and its problems, we think about about, I don't know, we think about the market, if we're talking about contemporary domestic service, there's the global care chain. So it's all, it all has to do with capitalism. Right. So socialism seems to be kind of a, an implicit alternative to that. That's why people don't tend to think that actually socialism itself, or at least a country that claims to have built socialism that doesn't necessarily automatically eliminate domestic service. And I would love to see more scholarship on domestic service in other socialist yeah. societies. I mean, the relationship could be very different. For example, in Cuba, mm-hmm. there is this um, uh, domestic service is closely associated with colonialism. So there is a race. There, there's a race they mentioned. So in China, things might be different altogether. So I would want to see a more global conversation about domestic service under socialism. Mm-hmm. And with 
elderly people, it was also the same effect. You know, we look at, at, at youth so much. Why not look at the elderly people? They were at least very numerous, for one thing. They had to matter somehow. Right. <laughs> but of course, this is kind of the first stage of thinking about your project. But then, uh, for me, the biggest challenge was to understand what does this actually mean when you think about Soviet society or the socialist project. And for me, the um, kind of the underlying thing was that socialism at the same time could um, you know, empower women or empower the elderly. But at the same time, uh, really, be because the Soviet society was so hierarchical, you can see them really marginalized. So it's, uh, there is, for example, this recent conversation, is socialism better for women? Right, right, right. And so it's interesting to see how it's not better or worse, but how how it can move in different directions, how there can be very, very different uh, effects on different aspects of, of, of society. That was Alyssa Klotz, an assistant professor of Russian history at the University of Pittsburgh, specializing in social history, gender, and everyday life under Soviet socialism. She's writing a book tentatively titled the kitchen maid that will rule the state, domestic service in the Soviet Union. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.
Mine.